This is The Pursuit of Evolution, and I'm your host, Casey Jordan. As a resilience and self-trust coach, I help people navigate life-changing events to not just survive, but thrive and grow in new ways. I created this podcast to show you what can happen when you tackle the hard parts of life head on. You'll hear from a wide variety of guests who've made some hard choices and big changes to build a life that they love and that they deserve. I'll also teach you my favorite strategies and tools so you can do the same. This is your invitation to lean into the hardship, explore the possibilities, and pursue your next greatest evolution. Change is inevitable, but evolution is optional. Hey, welcome to episode one of the Pursuit of Evolution podcast. I'm your host, Casey Jordan. And today's episode is all about where did the name of the show come from and who the hell am I? So let's dive in. So first up, the pursuit of evolution, this idea that I have kind of come to realize as I have coped with a couple of life-changing events of my own. I came to realize that change is inevitable, but evolution is optional. At some point in your life, something is going to go wrong or you are going to realize you're just not where you want to be and you're going to need to make a big change. And too often I see people resisting change and fighting it, and it just makes the whole thing worse. It makes them miserable. And I realize if you lean into the change, it doesn't mean you're not going to grieve or be angry or that it's not going to be hard. But if you lean into the change with curiosity and self-trust, you will find more options and opportunities and you will evolve into a new place in your life. And Essentially, that's where the pursuit of evolution came from. I want to encourage people to stop fighting the change so hard, to know that you can hold grief and excitement at the same time, that you can hold anger and joy at the same time, that it's not one or the other, that there's no one right way to live life. We get caught up in this idea that life is supposed to follow this particular path of school and then college and then finding a partner and getting married and buying a house and having a career and all of it with this kind of guise that there's some end goal that we're all trying to get to some magical end point and we have to just travel the path to get there that's not the case at all and i want us to stop looking at our minds that way I want us to start looking at our lives with curiosity of what are the other options I could have. If I'm not happy with where I am, what else could my life look like? Or if you get blindsided by unexpected, unwanted change, what other opportunities can be pulled out of this mess? And I want us to learn how to trust ourselves. And when I talk about self-trust, I don't mean I trust myself to get the right answer every time. Because, like I mentioned, there's no right answer a lot of the times. But that I trust myself that no matter the outcome, I'll be okay. I trust myself to make these decisions and take these steps in the way that will be best for me and my well-being. And keeping those things in mind helps us build this ever-growing, ever-evolving approach to our lives. The pursuit of evolution. And so throughout the course of this podcast and pretty much any conversation you have with me, I'm going to be encouraging you to think and grow beyond where you're at in this moment in time. I would encourage you to constantly be leaning into the change and looking for the opportunity and doing the learning and the growth 
that puts you in constant pursuit of your own evolution. So that is the super quick version of where the show title came from. The, there's kind of two main moments in my life that kind of drove me down this path of realizing, of seeing the pursuit of evolution, of realizing this is a thing. And so the bullet point version, and we'll go back and expand on these later, but the bullet point version is that when I was 19 in April of 2004, while on deployment in Iraq with the Montana Army National Guard, I was wounded in a roadside bombing and left with uh, permanent joint nerve damage on my left side uh, and ultimately would also be diagnosed with a mild traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress. And so coming home at 19 years old and trying to reintegrate into a world that was still relatively new to the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. There were not many veterans ahead of me when I came home and trying to reintegrate as a quote unquote, normal 20 year old carrying the weight of combat and PTSD with me definitely put me on a different trajectory and a different pace than a lot of my peers. And then the second life-changing moment when I tried to do everything quote unquote right and follow that life path. I got married. I'm still married. He's amazing. We'll talk about him later, but I got married and we bought our dream house and that we wanted to raise our kids in and the community that we wanted to raise our kids in. And so we started doing that whole thing where you build a family and it turns out we're both really infertile. And so after a lot of infertility treatments and a lot of loss and heartbreak, we made a very difficult decision to move forward in life child-free, not by choice. And so sitting there having had years together planning what it was going to be like to raise our kids and planning how we were going to parent and all daydream about parenting and all of those things all of a sudden that entire life plan changed and when that changed that created this opportunity this void to do our whatever the fuck we wanted because now we had no roadmap ahead of us and then at the time we didn't really know anybody else who'd made such a decision. We knew some people who were child-free by choice, who'd never wanted kids, never had them. But I don't think back then either of us knew anybody who had made the change, who had made the decision to stop trying and move on childless and have to simultaneously grieve this future that nobody will ever see that was our, you know, personal thing. Simultaneously have to grieve this future and also decide what our future is going to look like now amidst that grief. And that led to some giant changes. We made the decision to sell our dream house in the state that we never thought we would leave. I'm born and bred in Montana. He'd been in Montana a long time. Everybody was shocked when they found out we were moving to the East Coast. We packed up and moved to Virginia because what the hell, why not? If we can't have kids, let's create some other adventure for ourselves. And so we moved across the country. So that's the super quick bullet point version of my story. Now I could sit here and elaborate on all those stories and tell you all the details, but I, I don't, I tell the story so often that I sometimes forget important parts or I sometimes don't hit on interesting parts, the, the nuances that other people want to know. So a couple of weeks ago, I reached out to a bunch of my friends on Facebook and I said, hey, what questions do you have about my life? 
specifically being a disabled combat veteran and our infertility journey, what questions do you have? And I take a very strict, strict's not the right word. I take a very loosey-goosey policy to that there's no question. If you're willing to ask the question, I'm willing to answer that. Now, occasionally I have been asked questions that are inappropriate and that becomes a great learning opportunity for the person who asked me said question. And I hope that those people have learned lessons along the way so they don't ask stupid questions to the wrong person. Um, but my friends are amazing. They sent me a whole bunch of questions. So we're going to do this Q&A style. It's going to jump around a little bit, but we're going to talk about Iraq and my experiences as a veteran first, and then we're going to dive in and tackle some questions that are more specific to uh, the infertility side of things and kind of how I deal with life now. So let's do it. So one of the first questions I had, I can't read the question directly because my friend is a writer and it was long and rambly, <laughs> but he said, when a soldier half a world away is injured on the TV, the news is like, man, that's terrible. And damn right, it's terrible. But he wanted me to tell him and help put a face to it. Like what actually happened the day that I was wounded? So like I said, we were we were traveling from the Baghdad airport back to the camp where we lived. I worked as a turret gunner for military police. So my specific job was making sure that people and equipment got safely to the places they needed to be to provide security while they were at those places and that they stayed safe and then safely got them back to where they came from. So as a turret gunner, I'm that person that sticks out the top of a Humvee truck with the big gun. And we were coming back from the Baghdad airport back into the camp we were living in at that point in time. And I just remember, it's so surreal to even think about what happened, yet I still remember all of it like it was yesterday, but it's been 17 years now. And I remember cruising along, I was listening to music. I always had an earbud in on one side. I had some 80s classic rock playing. And one minute we're cruising along and everything's fine. And the next minute, the next split second, we're in this just this cloud. Like somebody just flipped the switch. And I remember crystal clear in my brain thinking wait did we just we just got oh shit we just got hit shit and like time screeched to a halt we were actually under an overpass and so all of the debris from the explosion essentially was trapped around us it's we were in this giant cloud of dust and smoke and you could hardly see the front of the hood of the truck and i remember not wanting to look down into the truck because I was afraid of what I would see. I was afraid my driver, my team leader wouldn't be there, but I knew I had to look down. And eventually I took a deep breath and I did. And they were there and they were okay. In a little bit of shock too. And I remember one of the soldiers that was with us, my friend Eric, jumped out. And he looked at me and he gave me a thumbs up like with a question mark, like, are you okay? And I literally had to touch my arms and my chest and my face and look at my hands to make sure there wasn't blood because I didn't know if I was okay because the entire moment was so surreal and big and confusing. And I remember touching my arms and my face and I remember looking at my hands and not seeing any blood and giving Eric a big thumbs up back that I was okay. 
So he jumped back in the truck and we started driving forward slowly because one of the things they teach you is you need to get out of what they call the kill zone where this blast happened. We need to figure out where the rest of our team is and get ourselves to a point of safety. And so we started slowly rolling the truck forward, slowly driving forward. And I swear it took 10 minutes to get out of this cloud of dirt when in reality, we're probably five seconds into this entire situation. And we just, you couldn't see past the foot of the truck. And so very slowly, my driver started inching forward. And as we came out of the cloud of debris, there was just this wash of relief as we looked up and saw the rest of our team on the road up ahead of us. And they had all been in front of the blast. We had two trucks with us. They had been in front of the blast and they had gotten further up the road. And I just remember seeing them all staring back at this cloud of dust, like waiting for our truck to come out. And the relief I felt when we saw those trucks and the relief I could see on their faces when they saw our truck. And so we all reconvened, we gathered up, we realized there was some damage to a couple of the trucks, but there didn't appear to be any major injuries. And so we limped the trucks, two of the trucks had flat tires. So we limped the trucks to a better spot where we could provide better security for ourselves. So we could radio in for, for a team to come out and help repair the trucks and change out the tires so that we could get going again. And it's funny because this whole thing happened in, I don't know, it couldn't have been more than two minutes. But those two minutes felt like a hundred. As for me personally, I have what's called all concussive injuries. So I didn't get hit with any shrapnel. There was no cuts. There was no bleeding. While there was a lot of adrenaline pumping through my system, I didn't even know anything was wrong. It wasn't until probably, you know, a half hour later, while we were still sitting there pulling security, waiting for a wrecker to come help fix our trucks, that I started feeling pain and started realizing that something might not be right. And that pain just kept getting worse and worse. Well, when we finally got back to camp, I was able to see the medics. They confirmed I didn't break anything where we were living at the time. We had very minimal medical technology. And so they said, well, nothing's broken. Here's some ibuprofen. Try not to wear your body armor more than you had to. And send me back to work. It wasn't until I got back to the States that I was able to get an MRI and confirm that I had actually separated my shoulder and damaged the nerves in my shoulder, elbow, and wrist. And it wasn't until about five years later that I was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury because I deployed so early that we didn't realize just being exposed to a blast could cause a concussion and could cause long-term damage. So even though I never lost consciousness that I'm aware of, I could still end up with such an injury. And so, yeah, so that's, that's what happened in the moment. Like I said, it's funny now, so many years later, and like I said, I think it's been 17 years. I look back on that and it feels like I'm watching a movie. It feels like somebody else else's life. Like there's no way that this is my life. But it is. And it's super weird. So one of the next questions I got when I asked my friends for input, it was right at the same time that we were pulling out of Afghanistan officially and... That was all that was in the news about what a train wreck the situation in Afghanistan had turned into. 
And so my friend Terry, who also happens to be a Vietnam, he asked me, how am I going to put this into perspective emotionally and moving forward? And how do I move forward with my life? And one thing that I learned, one thing that I figured out quite early on in trying to deal with my PTSD was to stop looking at the big picture. If I look at the entire Iraq war as a whole and try to justify or explain my role within that war, I can't. If I try to look at the whole war and understand why my friends were wounded, why my comrades were killed, I can't. I can't wrap my brain around it. It doesn't make sense emotionally. It doesn't make sense politically. And it's too big. And so for me, I I learned early on, and I still carry this perspective, that I focus on the work I did and the work that my team did, where they're specifically helping rebuild the Baghdad Police Department. That was kind of our big picture mission. And I think about the people I met and interacted with. I think about the changes in police practices that we brought to the Baghdad Police Department that were beneficial. I think about the work I did to get my team home safely every day at the end of our missions. And I know that in that moment in time, I know that while I was there, the work I did mattered and it made a difference for somebody. And if I only focus on me and that moment, it makes sense. And I know what I did was good and it was the best I could do in a situation that I didn't have any control over the big picture of. So that has been a huge piece in my ability to kind of stop beating myself up, to kind of cope with some of the survivor's guilt and move forward with some of the harder parts emotionally of processing everything that happened. So my next question came from my friend Jody, and basically she asked if I was able to get the help I needed after coming home through the VA. And this is actually a surprisingly complicated question to answer, a not super direct question. So as I mentioned, I came home a long time ago. It's been 17 years. And when I came back, my unit was the second unit from Montana to have deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan. And so when I came home, they were still, we were the first veterans back from this conflict. And so the systems weren't in place. People were kind of unaware of us. and so. At first, I kind of slipped through the cracks, but when I realized I needed help and I very directly went to the VA and asked for help, I got the help I needed, which at the time was getting into therapy and getting on some medications. Throughout the course of the last 17 years, there have been their ups and downs. There was a whole snafu and kerfuffle where my brain injury went undiagnosed and slipped through the cracks. And actually somebody put in my chart that I did not have a brain injury without ever having actually consulted with me. And so when I realized a lot of the symptoms I was dealing with that I thought were PTSD, but also didn't quite match the PTSD diagnosis, when I realized that matched what was described as a brain injury, I went back to the VA and I raised a stink and I got the evaluation that I needed to confirm that I do indeed have a mild traumatic brain injury. And the VA in the state of Montana actually made some changes to their policies to make sure veterans like myself didn't fall through the cracks again. One of the things I have experienced pretty much consistently along the way, when you hear people who vent their frustrations with the VA or who ask me about my frustrations with the VA, 
is I have found that the VA system as a whole, both the disability, the compensation and pension side of it, and the actual healthcare side of it, they're giant bureaucracies. There is so much red tape and rules and systems, and it's just, it can be a bit of a train wreck. It can be insanely frustrating to navigate and to get straight answers. You have to be a a very vocal advocate for yourself, both in getting a disabilities claim processed, as well as in getting the healthcare that you need. And that is hard. Like if you're struggling with post-traumatic stress and depression and you have to advocate for yourself, like those two things don't go together. And I think that's where a lot of veterans get lost in the system is that the system itself is shitty and hard to navigate and you have to be able to speak up for yourself. And that said, once I have been able to get in to see somebody, all of the reps who have helped me with my disability claims throughout the year my actual doctors, the providers I've seen, the care has predominantly been amazing. People work for the VA often because they care about veterans or they are veterans, they're related to veterans. They're people with good hearts and they're people who are frustrated with a big shitty system too. And so, like I said, I I have been fortunate in being able to get all the help I need Along the way, I have sometimes had to be very vocal to get that help, and I've had to know very specifically who, where, what to ask to get the help that I need, and that shouldn't be the case. That shouldn't be how the system works, but it is. But once I've gotten in to see people, the care has almost always been exceptional. So that's my answer for that. Three of my friends, Alina, Liz, and Elisa, asked kind of variations on the same questions. But essentially, how do I live with all of it today? With the post-traumatic stress, with the brain injury, as a function of my PTSD, I do struggle with depression and anxiety. And this is, this is that pursuit of evolution thing. My ability to live with these things is an ever-evolving process. Every now and then, I used to, I used to speak with my friend Barb, used to teach high school psychology classes. And so every semester I came in and talked to her classes about living with PTSD. And it wasn't uncommon to get asked if I was all better. And even just the general public, I periodically get people who ask me like if I'm all healed now. And the the short answer is no. PTSD is permanent. There's research that shows it actually causes physical structural changes to the brain. Um, a brain injury is just that. It's damage to the brain. But what I'd like to clarify as well that I'm not healed. I have so many tools and coping mechanisms built into my life now that they don't have the same day-to-day impact on how I function in the world. So used to be struggling with things like anxiety about new places and crowded places. I just couldn't go because I couldn't process the anxiety. And now, while I might feel that anxiety, my family, my husband, they always let me like pick what seat I want first when we get to a restaurant so that I can sit in the seat that's going to make me most comfortable so that it helps quell that anxiety. I've learned tools for processing my anxiety and my thoughts in the moment when things are getting too big. So really, it's almost hard for me to describe how I live with it today because it's all so integrated into my day-to-day living here at this point in time. Early on, well, real quick, as of today, I still am on an antidepressant 
And we're looking at maybe some medications for anxiety again. I'm not currently working with a talk therapist, but the majority of the last 17 years, I've always had a therapist that I've been in connection with. So it's it's been a lot of therapy, some medications, self-exploration and learning. I've had amazing opportunities to go to a handful of different camps that are for veterans. Eagle Mountain Bozeman had a veterans retreat that I got to go actually a couple of years in a row that was amazing to hang out with other veterans, one of which was all female veterans. Making friends with other veterans to know that I'm not alone and that my experience isn't unique, but that also it is unique, but I'm not alone in dealing with that. I've also tinkered with things like journaling and meditating. I play with tarot cards as kind of a way to force me to think outside the box in a different way and look at the world from a different angle. And leading into this whole pursuit of evolution thing, this this never-ending curiosity and self-trust of like, okay, this doesn't feel like it's working anymore. What tools do I currently have that I could try? And if those tools aren't working, what tools do I need next? And so while it's still the PTSD and the depression, they still ebb and flow. I know how to better manage the ebbs when they happen. I know that every feeling is temporary and that it will get better. And I just need to best take care of myself and implement the tools I have as I get through that rough patch and get back out the other side. So yeah, living with it every day, I kind of forget how much a part of my life it is until somebody sits down and asks me questions. Which, if you're interested, feel free to DM me. I am happy to start listing some of the specific tools I use for managing my brain injury and the PTSD or maybe another episode on that. It's all stuff I'm very open about, but for the sake of this not being a horrendously long episode, (laughs) I'm not going to go into much more detail than that. But it is an ever-evolving process. Treatment for something like PTSD and depression is not a one-and-done You don't find the right medication and just stay on it forever. You don't find the right therapist and just stay with them forever. It's an ever learning and evolving what tools work now. And as these tools no longer work or as I'm ready for the next nuanced level of tools, doing the work to integrate those things. All right. So we're going to take a bit of a left turn here. We're going to talk about some of the infertility stuff, which all three of the questions that I have relating to like the infertility also really do relate to the PTSD and the brain injury. So yeah, let's dive into that. So a little more of that story is that my husband and I decided to start a family, found out we were having some issues and went to a reproductive endocrinologist, a fertility specialist. We ended up doing five rounds of in vitro of IDF and we got pregnant four times and miscarried four times, hence not having any kids. And for not totally understood reasons, we don't totally know why, but I can't say pregnant. And it is what it is. We could have kept doing IVF and maybe hoping for a different outcome, but IVF is incredibly expensive. Financially, emotionally, physically, it is draining. For about two years of my life, I did nothing but take hormones and wait to find out if I was pregnant again and try to enjoy the few weeks of pregnancy I had and hope that this was the one before we had to say goodbye again. And after two years of that, I just, 
I couldn't keep going. I couldn't keep gambling. We couldn't keep gambling that maybe the next one would be the one. Like my life was on pause, waiting for the answer of if we'd have kids or not. And so we made that difficult decision to not. And I have been very open about our infertility journey throughout the process. I think it's something we don't talk about enough as a society that we need to be talking about more because one in four couples will struggle to get pregnant. One in four pregnancies and a miscarriage. There's another statistic that just totally slipped my brain. But infertility is way more common than we acknowledge. And so I wanted to be open about it partly because that's the only way people knew I was struggling and that they could be there and support me, but also partly so that friends of mine who I've since found out were struggling knew that they were alone. So my friend Renee asked, how do I prepare myself and respond to well-meaning comments or questions surrounding our infertility journey? Like people don't understand what we've been through, but they want an answer or they try to give advice. So how do I handle that? Over the years, I've learned to just be very blunt. When you tell someone that you're struggling with infertility, often you get stories about the sister's cousin's roommate's best friend who tried whatever magical thing and got pregnant. Or you get the advice to just relax and it'll happen. Or as soon as we stop trying, it'll happen. And that all of those jokes are just so shitty. and. I make an effort to make a point that it is okay to choose to stop trying. That life without children isn't better or worse than life with children. It's just a completely different life. And it's okay to pick that life. I encourage people to not ask questions or not offer unsolicited advice. I think one of the most powerful things I ever learned while going through infertility and I use this now in all sorts of areas of grief throughout my life, is that it's okay to just say, I'm so sorry you're going through that. That must be so hard. Full stop. You don't need to offer hope. You don't need to offer advice. You don't need to ask more questions. Sometimes the wrong person, those questions can be very hard and really dig at hurts that we're already struggling with. And so my go-to response is often to just be as honest as possible and say, you know, turns out we're both very infertile. We can't have kids for personal reasons. We've decided that adoption and surrogacy are our path. And I'd like to leave it at that. Or I'll say that and I'll say, and if you have questions, I'm willing to answer them, but understand this is a sensitive topic. But for those of you listening, I think one of the best things whether someone's dealing with the loss of a loved one, a infertility journey, a devastating medical thing. When my husband was diagnosed with cancer last year, my, I call them my infertile friends. I have three girlfriends who are also child-free, not by choice. All they said was, that fucking sucks. I am so sorry. That's it. And that meant the world to me. It's okay to just hear somebody and leave it at that. So that's my answer to that. Kind of a secondary answer to that, because I often, with in the context of being a combat veteran, there are some questions that are essentially very inappropriate to ask veterans. And my friend Patrick asked this question with the caveat knowing he shouldn't ask this question because he knew I'm the person to ask this question. 
<laughs> is every now and then I get asked if I've ever killed somebody. And like I said, I have a policy. If you're willing to ask the question, I'm willing to answer it. But my first part of that answer is to educate people that that's an incredibly inappropriate question to ask. Asking somebody when they're going to start their fit, start their family or, you know, when they're going to have the second kid. And it's an inappropriate question to ask. You don't know what somebody is going through. And so when somebody asks a hard question or an inappropriate question, my first go-to is a quick lesson in that being in a very inappropriate question. And then depending on the mood I'm in, I will elaborate with my specific answer. So sometimes the go-to response is telling people to shut up because that's not something you should be asking. And I think too, if you're in a hard spot dealing with something like infertility, dealing with the loss of a loved one, Going through a divorce where people always want to pick sides of divorce and figure out who's to blame for the divorce. It's okay to rehearse these answers. It's great to rehearse these answers. I can answer a lot of questions about infertility and PTSD without breaking a stride because I've had these conversations in my brain with myself so many times. So find a go-to response that you're comfortable with, whether that's snarky, whether that's to the point or whether that's something that's going to shut the conversation down, you practice it to yourself. It's like a muscle memory thing that when somebody happens to the question and in the moment and the adrenaline start pumping, the words just tumble out of your mouth and you don't have to try to think of an answer in that moment. So the next question, my friend Shelby asked, she said, I'm curious to hear how you came to terms with being child-free and what you feel like I've gained, sacrificed, or learned from that quote unquote journey. There's some of us in the infertility world that really hate the word journey because journey sounds enjoyable and infertility is anything but that. I think one of the things I really realized is the importance of having hard conversations way before they need to happen. My husband and I started talking about that potential outcome of not having children about a year before we actually got to the point of knowing that we were going to be child-free and before we actually made the decision to stop treatment. And so we had a year to have that conversation from different angles. Sometimes it was a passing comment that, oh, if we have kids, I wouldn't be able to do this as easily as I can. For example, I used to be able to live two hours from my mom. And so it was easy for me to drop everything and go see my mom. And if we'd had kids, that would be much harder to do. Not impossible, but harder. And so having these hard conversations, talking about death with your loved ones early on. I am, I'm a very death positive, death advocate, conversation advocate, because we don't talk about this thing that's inevitable. And so then when it happens, people are shocked and they're blindsided and they don't know what their loved one's wishes are. But if we talk about it more often and we talk about it earlier, it makes it less scary. It makes it more understandable. It gives us time to process it so that when the hard moment happens, it's like getting hit by a pickup truck instead of a semi. It doesn't take the pain away. But the moment, like when it came to infertility, the moment that I woke up after my last miscarriage, I had to have a DNC. And the moment I woke up after that DNC, I actually felt relief because I finally had an answer to the question of if I was going to be a mom or not. Now, I granted, I went on to grieve hard. <laughs> there was a lot of tears for the next six months. I cried every day. There was a lot of grief. And in that grief, I could also look forward to this life that was going to be totally different. And 
as I mentioned earlier, I don't think there's a better or worse way to live your life. I don't think being a parent is more fulfilling than not being a parent. They're just completely different paths that each have their own separate pros and cons. And just stop saying that life is going to be worse because I couldn't have this thing I wanted. And to just start looking for the opportunities that I wouldn't have been able to pursue if I'd been a parent made it so much easier to make this transition. It really helped me to come to terms with it. Like I said, I definitely still have grieved. I'm still sad sometimes when I see my husband, especially with other people's kids, because he would have been an amazing dad. But I also look at the life we have, and I love the life we have, and we wouldn't be doing what we're doing if we'd had kids. So I think that was one of the biggest things that I really learned is there are no right or wrong answers in life. There is no better or worse path in life. It's about seeing the pros and cons in each of the opportunities and allowing ourselves to hold conflicting emotions like grief and excitement at the same time and not beating ourselves up for being excited because now we have this new opportunity. You know, my husband and I moved across the country because why not? We don't have kids. We can do whatever we want. And I don't beat myself up about being excited to do that. And I don't beat myself up for still sometimes being blindsided by grief that I never got to be a mom. So I think that has been one of the things that has helped me come to terms with the whole situation and has taught me a lot about just dealing with life in general. So the last question that I'm going to hit on came from my mother-in-law. She says, I know you as a very creative, hands-on, and always making artist. I was wondering if you were like that pre-PTSD or if the art therapy growth is from self-wellness. How does it help me? The art side of me actually came through infertility long after PTSD was fairly well managed. And I have since realized it's great for the PTSD side of my brain too. But when we were going through infertility treatments, I was in a place where I kind of couldn't function as a human. I didn't work. I was running a small business from home, but I was so overwhelmed and struggling with the infertility treatments. They are insanely demanding that I wasn't even able to keep working on my business, but I needed something to keep my days full. And so I got into woodworking and I discovered that when you're working with power tools, you have to pay attention to what you're doing because, you know, keeping your fingertips intact is kind of part of the goal. And in doing woodworking, I realized I could create a space where I didn't have to think about anything but now. Like there are people who can meditate and focus on the now. I have not been one of them. But I found that in art, in woodworking, I've since gone on. I now do uh, pyrography, wood burning, and I do block printing, and I'm dabbling with embroidery. When I'm doing art, I can focus on just now, and everything else goes away for a little bit. And so art has become both a mechanism of therapy and a mechanism of escapism. Because nothing else matters in that moment but the thing that I'm creating. And at the end of it, I get to look at this pretty thing I created, which is just a big hit of dopamine that makes your brain feel good. And over the last couple of years, I've come to realize how much I enjoy making art. And I'm now doing it more intentionally because it just is something I enjoy doing. I don't really consider myself artistic. And I definitely wasn't before. I mean, growing up, I... 
I was a theater kid, but I was not on stage. I did lighting design and backstage stuff. I've always been around creative people, but I've never considered myself a creative person. And I think a lot of that got lost in the PTSD because I was so focused on controlling myself and the world around me that I became even less creative and more logical. So then when I got into the infertility stuff, I really found and leaned into the creativity to escape reality and to also give me an outlet of sorts. That's it. That's the end of the questions that I've got for now. Like I said, if you enjoyed this episode, if you have questions for me, hit me up on Instagram. My DMs are always open. Casey.Jordan. I would love to hear your thoughts or if there's something I can expand upon to help you, please, please shoot me a message. And I hope today I've given you a bit of insight in who I am, what the pursuit of evolution is, and why I think it matters in your life. And I hope you'll come back for the next however many episodes to come, hopefully many, many episodes to come. And as I talk to other people who've been through all sorts of life-changing events and how they navigated those events and how they've grown from those events. And as we explore those stories, learning our own tips and tools for expanding your own curiosity and self-trust and hopefully helping you with your own pursuit of evolution. So until next time, thank you so much. I'll see you over on Instagram. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Pursuit of Evolution podcast. If you really love what you're hearing, be sure to screenshot this and head over to Instagram. Give it a share. Tag me at Casey.Jordan. I love hearing from each and every one of you, your insights and ahas from every episode. And by sharing over on Instagram, you also help me get in front of more eyeballs and get more listeners to the show so we can share these lessons with more and more people. So until next time, I'll catch you on the Instagram.